Well, good evening. It's great to be here. I think a lot of people might have picked up. Maybe we'll go back to the first couple of verses. It's a long one. I told George just to read to verse 34, but if you did get one of the handouts with the full text in there, you could follow along there. Um, I actually want to start off with this, an interview that I heard um, on the radio yesterday. Normally on Tuesdays, I work in the cities, got kind of a longer drive home, and um, I happened to be listening to the radio, and I heard this interview. Some of you may know her. I'd kind of briefly heard of her before. Um, her name's Maya Moore Iron. She was the WNBA star athlete who retired at the height of her career, I think it was like 2018 or 2019, because of a family connection, a friend, a man who had been wrongly imprisoned and incarcerated. And so she left, height of her career, WNBA, to help exonerate him and help him get released. He did get released, his name is John Irons. And the two of them have since married. I think she wrote a book first, and now they have a book out together. So that's what the interview was about. It's called Love and Justice. But it was, it was kind of interesting to hear about it. And at one point, the interviewer asked her, you know, what, what motivated you to leave the WNBA at the height of your career, right? Like most professional athletes, like that's where their identity is. That's what the interviewer literally said. And, you know, it's like, Seems like that would be very hard, a lot of, especially at the peak age she was at. You know, a lot of athletes, when they're getting older, have a hard time leaving. Like, what motivated you to do that? And she said, really, what I want it to do is I want it to leave a legacy. I want it to do something that would keep on enduring even after I'm gone. You know, I think that can resonate with a lot of us. Like, we want to feel that our life will amount to something even after we're gone. We want to feel like it's worthy. And I think, this is my opinion, she didn't really say this, but I think with her being a woman, and a woman of a minority race as well, I think sometimes you feel a little bit more like that as well. Like, I want to feel like I matter. And a lot of those same ideas are in this text that we're going to be looking at today. So this account of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with Jesus that George read, right? It's about a woman who lives under discrimination and prejudice due to her race, ethnicity, her gender, and personal issues in her life. So the setting is in Samaria, which is um, this northern region just north of Jerusalem, and if you don't know, Samaritans and Jews do not get along. Jews despise and look down at Samaritans. Ironically, they actually have the same ancestry, but over time, Samaria became a mixed people group. They were originally of Jewish descent, but they ended up intermarrying with people of different religions, of pagan religions. And so the southern Jews in Jerusalem looked down upon the northern Samaritans because they were considered impure, and they set up segregation policies against these Samaritans. Um, a lot of the southern Jews' hope was in having a return to political power and political freedom, right? The Romans are living in there then, and their hope that they would get political power was largely based on how well they could stick to this external acts of their religion, 
Samaritans aren't doing that. So a lot of judgment there. Samaritans in their part, <laughs> in response, were like, well, fine, then we're not going to accept the whole Hebrew Bible. We're just going to accept that first five books, the Pentateuch, all the prophets, that kind of rebuke us. We're not going to accept that. And on top of that, we're not going to Jerusalem to worship where all the southern pure Jews are going. We're going to find our own place in Samaria to worship. Different points um, between these two groups sometimes explode out in violence, destruction. I feel like that's not uncommon throughout history, right? A little bit like what still goes on in Israel today with Muslim Palestinians and Israel Jews still erupts in violence. Same ancestry, same region, Ukrainians, Russians, Bangladesh, Indians, right? Like this, this goes on, and that was, that's the setting of Samaria. Um, the time, it says, is the sixth hour, which probably means noon, which is an important detail because noon is not the time you want to go haul water, do this heavy physical act in Mediterranean climate. So that's you know, should strike the reader when we hear that as, well, that's weird, that's unusual. And it's also unusual that this woman is there alone. Most of the time, hauling water, drawing water was a task woman would do together. So it really seems like the author is trying to communicate to us that, hey, this woman showed up in the middle of the day to get water alone to avoid social interactions, to avoid discriminations, and some public disgrace and embarrassment that she was experiencing. But ironically, she shows up at the well, and there sits a Jewish man. <laughs> you know, I just think, like, what must she been thinking? Like, what do I do now? Do I go? Do I not go? Um, it would have been totally improper for her to talk to Jesus as a Jewish man. He normally wouldn't have talked to her. Um, again, just a little background, like, most uh, Jewish men of the day wouldn't even talk to their own wives in public, much less another woman. Um, scholars point out how rabbis would write that it was inappropriate to teach your daughters that Pentateuch, the first five books, the foundations of the Hebrew Bible, was just as inappropriate to teach your daughters that as putting her into prostitution. That was the view of women, and that was of Jewish women. You know, again, she's a Samaritan woman. A generation later, the Jews will codify regulations that say women or Samaritan women are considered perpetually unclean, like a leper, like somebody with a contagious infectious disease. So that was the setting <laughs> of her showing up there. But Jesus breaks this social crisis by saying to her, give me a drink. And her response demonstrates that shock, right? She's like, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And he responds to her, if you knew the gift of God who gives living water, you'd be asking me for water. And what he's really doing here is he's telling her in sort of an indirect, respectful way that he is the promised Messiah. He's calling himself living water. Old Testament prophets, the major Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, like if you ever saw Handel's Messiah, that's from the book of Isaiah. All the Jews knew the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, another major prophet, they would refer to the promised Messiah as living water. So if she knew her scriptures, she would know that he's saying, I'm the promised Messiah. But she doesn't know because she's a Samaritan, 
She's ignorant. She doesn't, ha- she doesn't follow the full Hebrew Bible. So it's lost on her. And her response is, well, give me that living water, thinking it's literally water. Right? She's just focused and confused on how she can get that living water, um, and she misses Jesus' point. So in verse 14, Jesus tries a second time to let her know, hey, I'm the promised Messiah, and I bring something different here, right? Like, he says, he compares himself to the well of Jacob. He's like, that well, Jacob was the patriarch of Israel. His name gets changed to Israel. A whole nation comes through him. Kind of a big deal in Israel history. But he says, you know, that well from Jacob, you're going to be thirsty again. But I give living water, so you're never going to be thirsty again. And then he calls himself the source, the one who will actually give a spring of living water within you that gives eternal life. But again, the woman, like, he, you know, he's saying, I give eternal life. She still can't hear it. She's only operating in this plane of this is literally water, and I will never thirst again, and more importantly, I'll never have to go to this well again in public and experience the embarrassment and disgrace that I always experience. And so maybe to switch gears here, Jesus changes the topic of conversation to, again, respectfully let her know, like, hey, you're not getting my point here. So he switches the topic of conversation and says, go get your husband. Now, this could be out of nowhere. Maybe it was a test, but I think, again, what it was is he was trying to let her know, you're misunderstanding me. I'm saying something different to you here. And he's probably trying to prime the pump, too, that there's a lot of things she's misunderstanding about her life and her needs. And so the woman, in response to go get your husband, she answers truthfully. She says, I have no husband, which is formally correct, but, right, it's not the whole thing, right? And we do that. Like, I know I can share just enough of something that it'll prevent somebody from asking me any more embarrassing questions. But Jesus responds and reveals that he knows and he understands all these personal details of her life. Most people of the day, with the details Jesus shared, would view this woman as a mess. They would see her as damaged goods. But notice what Jesus does and doesn't do here. He doesn't, like, focus on her external behavior as the source to having something better. He doesn't say, you know, sex is dirty, and so are you for doing this. But then on the other hand, he's not a relativist. He isn't like, you know, sex is a natural appetite. You just need to accept yourself more and experience more and love yourself more. He doesn't go to either end of those spectrums. But what he does do is he lets her know that he knows her, that he notices her that he understands the details of her situation and that God has something better for her that will satisfy and, you know, 
so she won't thirst anymore, satisfy her inner longings and needs. So finally the woman realizes, like, okay, there's something more to this guy. She sees he's a prophet, but she tacks on a question about, but where's the proper place of worship? So maybe, right, like she's uncomfortable about these personal topics, I'll just switch it to a religious debate that this Jewish guy will probably bite on so I don't have to talk about this anymore. That's possible, but I think she really is confused. She's like, I really want to know, but I don't get it. Like the Samaritans say this is truth, the Jews say this is truth, like what is truth? And in the original Greek, too, there might be like a kind of a nuance here. The original Greek, whether it says a prophet or the prophet, she might be kind of saying like the prophet will explain, um, the, you know, if you're the prophet, sorry, later is um, Messiah who will explain everything. But to a Samaritan, the main thing about the prophet, the promised Messiah, was that he would be an explainer of all things. So she might kind of be like, are you the prophet who will explain everything? And she asks him to explain this confusing worship thing. And Jesus does, and he sort of gives this token nod like, yeah, okay, Samaritans, you didn't get it all right. You, you don't know what you're worshiping fully. He gives a token nod there, but the core of his response is really, it doesn't matter because those external acts, the external sight of where to worship is about to become obsolete. Jesus is saying it's kind of pointless to have this prolonged debate over whether we worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria, because both sites are about to be obsolete by my life, death, and resurrection. Before Christ came, the way people of God would worship was by following all these external regulations and laws, right? It was supposed to ideally be a reflection of their inner faith, but they had to follow all these laws. If you're part of the church, you know, we did a series on the Pentateuch, like the more the people rebelled, right? Like they built a golden calf, and he's like, okay, now instead of just the Ten Commandments, you got the whole Levitical code, then they worshiped goat demons, they got even more laws. The law was never the ideal way to guide the people, the promised Messiah was the ideal way. And the promised Messiah would eventually place God's spirit in people's heart so that God's indwelling spirit in their heart would guide them rather than a bunch of external rules and laws and regulations. That's what Jesus meant when he said, true worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus states, right, the hour is coming and, in fact, is here now. He's just saying it's now. And finally, the woman gets it. She says, when the Messiah comes, he'll make everything plain to us. Again, their hope was that this Messiah would be the explainer, the revealer of everything. It's an indirect, respectful way to be like, am I talking to the promised Messiah? And Jesus needs no other further invitation. He says, I'm him. And the woman, in her excitement, goes out and tells everyone about this man she just met who tells her everything she's ever done, which, again, that too shouldn't be lost on us. 
This is a woman who wouldn't go out in public in the cool of the day or the cool of the evening to do her task because she wanted to avoid social interactions, public disgrace and embarrassment because of her messy personal life. And now she's going out to everybody like, this guy knows everything about my personal life. You want to come and meet him? Like, you know, that would kind of hit you too. Like, yeah, I think I do. Let me go talk to him. Jesus, the only one who would sit and talk with her in public and show that he knows her and that he understands her is none other than the promised Messiah. And then at this point, the disciples come back, presumably with some kosher food that might, probably would have taken a little while to get in Samaritan area. And the text states their unvoiced shock, and they kind of seem to want to pull them away, like, here, come and eat and get away from that dirty, unclean woman. But Jesus responds that he has food already that they know nothing about. And they're like, the disciples, these Jewish men who have been called by Jesus and spending time with him, just like the woman, misunderstand Jesus because they're only thinking in literal terms. They're no different than the Samaritan woman. Jesus shoots kind of straight with them pretty quick, though, and he says, you know, my food is to do the will of the Father who has sent me. Jesus is saying, you know, I have a purpose and meaning to my life that is so motivating, it makes physical food secondary. You know, doing this meaningful work is what sustains me even more than food. And so throughout this account, we see Jesus trying to communicate to the woman, to the disciples, that he's offering this eternal life, this indwelling Holy Spirit that satisfies more than any water or any physical food. But we do well to ask ourselves, like, why did it take the woman so long to get it? Why did it take the disciples who were Jewish men who had spent time with Jesus so long to get it? The woman probably kept missing Jesus's points because she felt she was disqualified. She felt unworthy, like she didn't matter, right? Like because of things she was born into, her race, her culture, her ethnicity, her gender, things done to her, things she had done, she just believed, I'm disqualified. I'm not worthy. Then the disciples, on the other hand, misunderstood Jesus too because they were hedging their bets that their external acts were going to make them qualified. They couldn't understand Jesus because they were so focused on these external efforts. And really, we do these same things, right? Like some of us, we feel disqualified. Or maybe all of us <laughs> at some point <laughs> feel disqualified because of what we've been born into, because of our gender, because of our race, because of what's been done to us, because of what we've done. And we've just come to the conclusion, I'm disqualified. I, I can't enjoy something like that. Or others of us, or again, maybe all of us in response to feeling disqualified, right? Then we try to quickly 
feel qualified by the external things we're going to do. If I can do this, if I can follow these external regulations, then I'll be okay. But we're hedging our bets. But what Jesus is teaching to the woman at the well and to the disciples and to us <laughs> is that God's eternal life, believing in Jesus as the promised, promised Messiah, is what qualifies us and deeply satisfies. You know, I think like the woman at the well, we all want to be known, right? That's why we have relationships and intimate connections. We want to feel like we're noticed and understood and known. And I think like the disciples too, we also want to have a sense that like what we're doing in this world matters. We want to feel like the things we're putting our time and energy into, like Maya Moore irons, will make some difference after we're gone. Relationships aren't bad, good acts aren't bad, but the problem is neither one really takes away that deep gnawing sense that maybe I'm not qualified. Maybe something isn't right, right? Like when we operate, I think when we're out in this world doing stuff, we often get this sense like, it seems like something isn't right in the world. It seems like something's wrong. Seems like the world ought to be different. Sometimes seems like I ought to <laughs> be different, be better. Right? We have that nine sense, like maybe things were intended to be a different way. And that's what the Bible describes as the fall. Right? Like originally, the way things were created, it was intended to be different. But then sin and corruption and human rebellion entered in. And God's epic plan to set things right that he's been revealing since the first humans walked on the planet and has fulfilled since Jesus Christ walked on the planet is that he said he would send a wounded Savior who would take on that sin and that corruption and human rebellion and die for it, and then he would overcome it by raising from the dead. Theologian and author J.I. Packer said, you know, the gospel doesn't first bring us solutions to the problems of suffering and injustice. What it does first and foremost, the deepest of all human problems, is solve the deepest of all human problems, the problem of man's relationship with his maker. The eternal life the gospel that God offers through Jesus Christ doesn't come in and clean up your mess of your life. What it does is it gives you a whole new source of life that qualifies us because it's based on Jesus Christ's work, not our own. And that gives us meaning and purpose, and that satisfies you know, eternal life, again, the gospel, doesn't mean that, okay, you're forgiven of your past, and now you get a new start, now go out and just try harder than you did in the past. That's not the gospel. <laughs> when we receive eternal life from Jesus also, it's not like this one thing you get and it's stagnant and you're waiting for it in eternity. Jesus is saying that the eternal life he gives us is a new driving source of life the indwelling spirit, and it's dynamic. It starts when we believe. It's not stagnant, and it keeps going, and it qualifies us. 
now and in the future to be joined to God, to be part of his plans and purposes, to have meaning and purpose, which again, deeply satisfies us. And we see this in the woman, right? When she encountered Jesus, she didn't go out and try harder. She didn't just try to clean up her act. She lived out of this confidence that she was known and qualified. That's why she's going out and talking to people. And the people can sense that in her, and they go and meet Jesus. The end of the text that, again, is written in there, um, you know, says Jesus ends up staying with them for two days in Samaria, which is, again, unheard of for a Jewish teacher to do. But because of their belief, he does. Um, so again, through this account, through Jesus' eternal life that he gives us, we get to be qualified to join God's work for now and eternity, which deeply satisfies. I think it's a human, you know, it's universal in humans to want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Again, back to that Maya Moore iron. It's like we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And through faith in Christ, God qualifies us to join him, to be with him, to be known by him. And that deeply satisfies. And there's a lot of those core themes in this text today.